Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiya, handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where we rage all night, but like internally, under lock and key, where no one will ever see it. Fun. So grab your glow sticks and your iridescent lipstick a la dirty dancing do we remember this when lisa's like where is my beige iridescent lipstick anyway grab your shit and let's get into it this week we're talking about the trauma response of fawning (laughs) i remember the first time i ever heard about this because for a long time the trauma responses were just like fight or flight that's what i learned growing up and then it was fight flight or freeze And then just a few years ago, I heard about fawning for the first time. And it was like, suddenly I was seen. I was like, holy shit, that is me. That's what I do. So I'm going to start by just giving a definition. So we're all on the same page. Fawning is a complex PTSD based trauma response. And here's what the internet's told me about it. Quote, the fawn response is an instinctual response associated with a need to avoid conflict and trauma by using appeasing behaviors. For children, fawning behaviors can be a maladaptive survival or coping response that developed as a means of coping with a non-nurturing or abusive parent. Psychotherapist and complex trauma expert Pete Walker coined the term fawn to describe a specific type of instinctive response. And I think it's so important that we say instinctive because I forget that instinctive response resulting from childhood abuse and complex trauma. In his discussion of fawning, Walker asserts that trauma-based codependency is learned very early in life when a child gives up protesting abuse in order to avoid parental retaliation, thereby relinquishing the ability to say no and behave assertively. This also results in the repression of trauma-associated fight response. Although you might easily stand up for others, you may find it difficult, even impossible, to stand up for yourself when being maltreated by others, including when in conflict with your family. You may instead seek to appease those who treat you badly as a means of avoiding conflict or even deny the sad truth of your situation altogether. If you identify as being highly sensitive, intuitive, or an empath, you may tend to avoid conflict as much as possible and will deny your truth in an attempt to make those you feel dependent upon or care about comfortable, quote, unquote. (laughs) So in other words, it's a natural response that happens when you are abused or treated badly or not nurtured by your parents or caregivers in an ongoing way. The goal of it is to avoid your parents or caregivers retaliating against you. And what it looks like is giving up your ability to say no 
and to be assertive. And you also repress your fight response. Like you just don't have any fight in you. <laughs> and as adults, what happens is that we often fawn all over people who abuse us or treat us like shit. You know, we take care of them. We compliment them. We really try to empathize and understand what they're going through, even as they're treating us badly, or even with people who maybe, you know, aren't abusive necessarily, but they're just like out of line. It's so hard for us to set boundaries and stand up for ourselves and be like, Hey, like this isn't cool. It's tricky and it's nuanced and it's complicated. And that is why I'm so happy to welcome psychotherapist Liz Marks back to the show. Hey, Liz, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so good. I'm, I was telling you before we started that I'm like extremely pumped to talk about this with you. And I'm so excited that you were down to come back on. You came on a few months ago to talk about parental rejection. Mm -hmm. And when we talked about that, we were kind of going through your astrology. You have a Gemini sun, Capricorn moon, cancer rising. Mm -hmm. And I didn't ask you last time if you feel like that combo shows up for you in your work or if one of those signs in particular shows up for you as a therapist. So it's an interesting question because I think, you know, as a therapist, so often, especially from a school perspective, we're taught to show up almost as a blank slate, right? Mm, right. We're here as, you know, a mirror, not a guide. Um, and I think that any therapist who takes a humanistic approach doesn't utilize that tool because we're not a wall. Totally. So I'd say everything about me from my sign to my upbringing to my thoughts and feelings on most things come into my work. Absolutely. And how I am as a therapist. So, you know, I think sometimes Gemini's we get a bad rap, but I think that that two sides that, you know, you see in that Gemini that you know, tough love, but also coming from a space of honesty and mm. authenticity and kindness. I think that's what oftentimes makes me a good therapist for somebody. Mm. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And I think, I think my signs are, are interesting. I, I, we talked a little bit about it when I was on here last time about astrology coming into therapy as it is, as us oftentimes seeing it as proof, right? Mm -hmm. I am thoughtful. I am nice. I'm a XYZ or I'm a Leo. I'm a whatever. And using that as this proof for us. And I think that being a therapist and showing up as a whole human, when you work with somebody is bringing all of your, all of you there. So right. definitely I think my signs show up for sure. <laughs> well, and something that I think people often forget about Gemini I have a Gemini rising, so I understand the bad rap, <laughs> but, um, but actually, uh, you know, the symbol of Gemini is the twin. Mm -hmm. Did we talk about this last time? Mm -hmm. We did a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's the twin, but actually the original symbol was the two pillars because they mm -hmm. represent the gateway to knowledge because yeah. Gemini's love to learn. And I think that's one thing that's, that's really fascinating about Gemini's and about, um, it's just something that's like part of the ancient archetypal wisdom of Gemini that of course gets left out of memes. <laughs> yeah. Let's bring, let's bring that back. Let's bring yeah. the color back. Let's leave the twins, uh, you know, away from the jewelry and everything for a minute. No, but I, I mean, I think it's so true. And I think, you know, to be good at any job, you need to put your whole self into it. And totally. is, and I think that, everything about me definitely shows up and yeah. how I am a therapist. Yay. I am excited uh, to have all of you 
talk to all of us about how the fuck we handle this because this has been like uh, such a big thing for me. Okay. So on that note, I'm stoked to get into this with you mm-hmm. um, because the truth is like, I've been beyond irked with myself for my fawning behaviors for years. But what I'm realizing now is that those behaviors are not an indication that I'm like not a real adult or not a good feminist, but actually an indication that I've been traumatized. So Mm -hmm. thank you so much for getting into the belly of the beast with me today. I'm going to go through my own experience on the topic for a minute. Feel free at any point to jump in with thoughts, opinions, life instructions, whatever, (laughs) or you can totally, you know, paint your nails, eat a granola bar, whatever. (laughs) And then at the end, I'll turn questions over to you. How does that sound? Sounds great. Sweet. Okay. So here we go. I think I maybe mentioned this once before, but it's the cradle of my personal journey with realizing something was off. When I was probably 12 or so, I was hanging out with my step cousin who was 14 and he was cool. He wore a biker jacket. He was mad all the time. You know, he was into like Metallica and shit. And we were hanging out when my dad walked into the room and asked me a question. I interacted with my dad for a minute. And when my dad left, my cousin turned to me and was like, you're so fake. And to be clear, this was the nineties the era of grunge and the era of not selling out and not being fake. Also, I had a huge crush on my step cousin, side note. So I was mortified by this. And I think maybe that's when my frustration with myself started because I began to get an inkling that I didn't have control over this people pleasing that would come up in me. It was like, it was bigger than me. And even when I was deeply angry about something, or I felt like someone was being like super fucked up, maybe malicious, deceptive, abusive, even rude, whatever the case, I still had such a hard time telling them to get fucked, which, you know, maybe for some people that's like very spiritual or something. But for me, it's been the source of incredible frustration. It's made me feel like a child walking in an adult body because I become flooded with fear in moments of confrontation. And because the lengths that I have to go to internally to set a boundary or to feel confident standing up for myself, it takes so much energy from me. Like I have to work so hard on the inside to get to that point when for other people, it seems like it just comes very naturally. Okay. So how did I get here? I I do want to start by saying that both of my parents struggle with their own mental health stuff. And so my goal in looking backwards at how they parented isn't to villainize anyone, but to get clarity on some cause and effect. I'll start with my dad. My dad was and, and can be still today a very scary person. When he was angry, which was a lot, it was terrifying to me as a little girl. I remember one time I peed my pants while he was raging at me when I was like maybe five or six, because I was so scared of him. His anger was unpredictable. And for lack of a better word, it was, it was big. It was loud and it was mean. I remember when I was 10, I was at the grocery store with him and his girlfriend. And there were these crackers that I really liked called cheese wedges or something. And I was so scared, but I finally gathered the courage to ask him if we could get those crackers. And he didn't get mad at me that I asked. He misunderstood what I was asking. He thought I was asking if we could buy pre-cut cheese wedges. 
And when he responded and said like, well, we can just buy a block of cheese and cut it. I was so anxious and, and, and so terrified that I, I couldn't clarify and explain to him what I meant because I had essentially used up all my courage, just asking for the crackers. And that was the thing. We never knew what was going to set his anger off. So maybe it was the crackers today and maybe it wasn't. I just never knew. He also was really strict about certain things. We could never just relax around him. If we made a mistake with our grammar or if, or if we responded to a question with like, yeah, or even yes, instead of yes, sir, that would really set him off. He was also really cold. He did never give any verbal encouragement and he wasn't curious about who I was, at least outwardly. He wasn't like, tell me about school or tell me about your dance classes or, you know, what do you want to be when you grew up? Um, and he also didn't, he didn't want to hug us or have us sit in his lap or anything. It was like, I was there, but I wasn't really there unless he was mad at me. I remember when I was 12, I was on a plane to go spend the summer with him and his girlfriend. And I was saying to myself over and over again on the plane, this time I'm going to be perfect. And he's never going to get mad at me, which of course, you know, didn't work. In terms of my emotional relationship to him, I just didn't feel loved by my dad. I felt like I had to work really hard to try to get him to love me and to try to get him, you know, not to be abusive, really. And those attempts were largely unsuccessful. So it was a lot of exhausting effort on my part and no real results to speak of when I was a child. My mom was more complex. There were times I felt genuinely loved and cared for by my mom. She could be really fun and really thoughtful and patient sometimes, but she also thought of herself pretty steadfastly as the victim in all situations. So in other words, she was never accountable. And as a child, that narrative really worked because, you know, for one thing, I was a child and children believe what you tell them, but also because she was the one source of kindness between my two parents. And so I felt protective of her. And I say protective because she was also very open and enmeshing about her heartbreak. She would sob when we were really young. Like I, I think maybe four or five is the first time I remember it happening. She would sob and ask us, you know, her children, why doesn't anyone love me? Why doesn't your father love us? Why don't I have a husband? And I felt so deeply sad for her. And it set up this dynamic where my mom was wounded. And so you couldn't be mad at her for anything because she was a wounded bird. And if you were angry at her, you were the asshole. So when I got older and, you know, started having, uh, you know, more complex feelings, I guess. And I started telling her when I was mad at her, she always had the same response, which was you're attacking me and I don't deserve this. So even though you were coming to her with something that she'd done, suddenly the tables are turned and now you're the one harming her because you brought it up. There were also many times that she raged just the way that my dad did over things that didn't make any sense. And a lot of that raging happened through clenched teeth. It was this like seething, unhinged kind of rage. And one example of this happened when I was a teenager, I was 15 and I had a presentation I had to give in one of my classes the next day. 
I came home and remembered that there was a very large pad of paper, like really big poster size construction paper in our hall closet. And I was like, perfect. I'll use that to make the poster for my presentation. So I cut out a single piece of this paper from the pad and started writing on it. And my mom walked in and saw this and flipped out. She started screaming that that was her paper and I had no right to take it. How dare I just use her things? It just went on and on and on. She grounded me. She told me I had to go to my room and that I was grounded for a week for using a piece of paper for a school assignment. So I was in my room sobbing and I called my boyfriend crying and told him what had happened. She was eavesdropping outside my room. She burst through my room. This was the nineties when phones were, you know, still plugged into walls. She yanked the cord out of the wall, pulled the entire phone out of my hands, told me I had no right to talk about her and left and slammed the door, taking the phone with her so that I couldn't talk to anyone. So that kind of thing wasn't uncommon in my childhood. And in fact, when I think back on being really young, I can remember the feelings of being really scared of my parents, but I can't remember why it's like my brain was too flooded and it deleted a lot of those memories. I I have a lot of the memories from when I was older, but as a like little child, I just, it's like, I have the imprint of the feelings more than the actual memories. So that's the complex trauma, the ongoing over and over again, trauma that Pete Walker was talking about when he named fawning in the first place. And in terms of how it looked in my life later down the road, honestly, y'all, it's like, I was like making a list of things to talk about in this part, like ways that this has shown up for me. And there were so many instances that I just really didn't know which ones to choose, but here are some, um, and they range from like, you know, teen years to full grown adult. So I'll start when I was 15. I was a sign language interpreter, which is its own story. But anyway, I, I knew sign language and there were a lot of deaf kids in the high school I went to. And one of them, my friend uh, was on the football team and he needed an interpreter to stay after school and interpret for him at football practice, which side note was a dream for me because I was the only girl with all these football players all the time. And my North note in Leo was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> anyway, there was a guy uh, in his twenties, probably like 27 or something who was an assistant coach. And he was very flirtatious with me and not in a subtle way. He literally told me multiple times that he wanted to take me on a date. Again, I'm 15. Another time he put his hand under my shirt in the back and just like put his whole hand, like stroked my back. Uh, anyway, I, I sort of always joked it off because I was confused by it. I was like, this dude is so much older. What's happening. Um, and I think at 15, I, I, I didn't understand pedophilia. I didn't, I didn't, no one had ever talked to me about that kind of thing. And so I knew it didn't feel right, but I was also, I didn't understand the gravity of it, I guess is what I'll say. Eventually I ended up dating someone on the football team. And when that started, he, he backed off, but then I found out that he was sleeping with several girls at school, like high school girls. And he was engaged by the way, I should have mentioned that, which doesn't detract from the pedophilia just points to, you know, what a piece of shit he was. Anyway, the next school year, his dad, who was also an assistant coach, asked me to meet him behind a building, like in secret one day to sign a paper confirming that his son had never been inappropriate with me. And I fucking signed it knowing that he had very directly hit on me many times 
because here was this older man, this authority figure telling me he needed me to do something. And I remember feeling so weird and so conflicted, but also feeling good because the dad was like, this is so great. You're really going to help us. You're doing the right thing. And there was also this underlying sense of like, if you don't do this, we'll be upset with you. And that was just too scary for me. That example is pretty obvious, but this trauma response has shown up in really subtle ways too. Like (laughs) the other day I was at the store with my friend and the guy at the checkout was like, Hey, we're having a big sale. Take a coupon book. And my friend took one and we walked out and afterwards she was like, "Ugh, I don't want this, but I felt like I was going to hurt his feelings if I didn't take it. And I was like, oh, wow, I relate to that so hard. It's like, you know, it's the stupidest little thing, but my knee jerk response is to prioritize that other person's feelings, neglect my own needs or wants or whatever, and just make sure that no one, no one else is upset, even if I pay the price in the end. There's another subtle way this has shown up for me. Uh, So when I was a freshman in college, I'd enrolled in this poetry workshop. And one day we were workshopping a poem and one of the other students said something that I didn't agree with. And I started to respond to be like, oh, actually, I think X, Y, Z. But I probably got maybe three words into it. And I started to literally black out like that feeling when you're about to faint, where suddenly you have tunnel vision and everything starts to go dark and you can't hear very well. My body was like, oh ho, ho, no, are you about to disagree with someone? I don't think so. And I, I, I just kind of stumbled over my words and then said, oh, sorry, I lost what I was going to say. And as soon as I said that and avoided the conflict, which wasn't even a conflict, it was just differing opinions in a workshop where you're meant to discuss differing opinions. But as soon as I shut it down, my body was like, good job. And right away, the vertigo stopped. It was essentially like my body was so used to conflict, bringing such intense fear and trauma and anxiety that it was like, yeah, this isn't safe and we're not doing this. Another way that fawning has come up for me is how I've shown up when men have pressured me around sex. There have been numerous times that I've gone along with something sexual because the guy wanted me to, even though I wasn't down at all. And during those moments, I remember I, I would just hold back tears and then I would go to the bathroom afterwards and cry because I felt so used or unseen. And there was specifically a time when I was in college and I went back to a guy's room with him and he immediately was like, I'm going to get a condom. And I was like, oh no, I don't want to have sex. And he said, well, what did you think you were doing coming to my room? And I immediately was like, oh, I have to have sex with this guy now because I came to his room and he's acting like I'm stupid. So I'm just going to go along with this. And I did. And I hated it. And to be clear, like, you know, these aren't really stand up dudes doing, you know, pressuring women into sex, but that's part of this trauma, right? They're like, hey, I'm going to kind of treat you like shit. And you're like, oh, cool plan, bro. And the reason for that is because you either can't see that you're being mistreated because you're too busy trying to figure out how to be liked and wanted, or you can see it, but you're too afraid to say anything because the conflict is too scary. Another example of fawning that came up with my dad, I was in my late twenties and I was visiting my dad for father's day. I was like, dad, I'm going to drive seven hours to come stay with you. And I'm going to make you dinner and hang out with you, which already is like, what, what is this girl doing? But anyway, I did, I drove seven hours. I made him dinner 
And afterwards I was like, don't touch a single dish. I'm going to do all the dishes because it's father's day. Like already the fawning trauma is so intense in this story. (laughs) And so I started washing a cast iron skillet of his, and I didn't know that you can't use soap on those because whatever the whole thing about the skillets is they absorb the flavor every time you cook with them. But if you use soap, it fucks that whole thing up, I guess. Anyway, I didn't know that at the time. So here I am fawning over this person who has, you know, been abusive with me my whole life. And I start washing this skillet and my dad flips out and starts screaming at me. And I got really scared and apologized a bunch and felt really stupid. Like I should have known better. Fast forward 12 years. This was a few years ago. I'm telling this story to my therapist. And I remember she asked me, and now when you think back on that moment, do you feel angry with your dad? And I was like, no, I don't. I feel ashamed and stupid. I feel like I always do something wrong and I mess things up and it's my fault. And at the same time, I, I also feel ashamed and stupid that I don't feel mad. I feel like that's the right feeling that I should have, but I just don't have it. And that also means that something's wrong with me. So suffice to say, this has been a journey That was a few years ago, like I said, and now when I look back on that situation with my dad, I see very clearly how out of line he was in that moment. And I attribute that shift in perspective to the fact that in the last, you know, like two years, probably I have been healing some of this and I've started responding to these situations much differently. This really came to a head in the last couple of years, when I was living with someone who would become verbally abusive, anytime I checked in with her about house chores that she wasn't doing, basically we all had a chore chart. We split chores in the house and my other roommate and I were doing ours, but she just for months and months, wasn't doing hers. And when I checked in and asked her if she could do her chores or like, if something was going on that was preventing her from doing them, you know, I was very respectful about it, but again, I was also very apprehensive because boundary setting is not something that has come easy for me. But when I checked in with her, she told me I was controlling that I could move the fuck out. If I didn't like it, that it wasn't just my house and she didn't have to do anything she didn't want to do in her house. And I remember when that happened, I felt two different things. The first one was that that was not okay, which was awesome because that's progress, right? But the second one was that I was flooded with paralyzing fear and deeply, deeply worried that I had done something wrong. I had done something to cause that reaction because this person's mad at me. And when someone was mad at me, my pattern was that immediately meant I had done something wrong. At that point in my life, I I hadn't gotten to the point where I could see that sometimes people getting mad at me has nothing to do with me. And I remember when she calmed down and the three of us, the roommates sat down to talk about it, she started going into her painful personal history with her family and how that was affecting her needs in the house. And it was affecting how she was reacting to the situation. And I was so focused on her history of trauma that it never occurred to me in the course of the conversation to say, Hey, those experiences sound really painful, you know? but they're also not excuses for yelling and being verbally abusive. It's not okay to talk to me that way. And it's not okay to use your trauma as a crutch for traumatizing others. It didn't occur to me till much later 
that the way she was showing up was very similar to the way my mom showed up when I was young, i.e. I can mistreat you because I've been wounded and you can't be mad about that or have a boundary with me because I'm in pain. And that's why I lash out. And you need to be sensitive to that and cater to that. This situation with the roommate has been one of my greatest success stories with boundaries. And I won't go into all the details. There were numerous iterations of the dynamic, including one in which she did apologize after I told her very directly that I didn't trust her and I thought she was out of integrity. But after numerous traumatizing experiences with her, including after she apologized, I finally got very clear that I couldn't live with her because it was too taxing on my mental health and my anxiety. I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop. That realization in itself was a success because I was, I suddenly had this shift where I was like, wait, what am I experiencing? What, what do I want? What do I feel? Anyway, that feeling was shared by my other roommate and together we asked her to move out, which I'll say was incredibly difficult for me. I was totally clear that that's what was best for me, but I was so unaccustomed to asking for what I needed. Plus my experience of this woman was, you know, volatile, unpredictable, unstable. And that combo really brought up a lot of my old childhood fears and that deep fawning pattern that was rooted in the belief that if I have a boundary, I'm not safe, but I was finally able to show up for what I needed and tell someone who really didn't want to hear it, that not only did she need to move out, but also that I couldn't be her friend. And in the end, the relief that I experienced was tremendous, but most of all, it created the sense that I could trust myself to handle these kinds of situations, to not roll over and allow myself to stay in a situation that feels dangerous or upsetting or sad or whatever it is that I can say no. And that's been huge for me. So on that note, what has helped me? How did I go from where I was even, you know, 10 years ago to where I am now? which is still not where I want to be long-term, but it's so much better than my past patterns. I'll start with this. One of the things that's been most effective for me in rerouting my fawn response has been just knowing that I have a a fawning pattern, right? And And that I don't want to because it harms me. For a long time, I didn't even know about this. And when I first started becoming aware of it, I really didn't get how problematic it was. I kind of thought I was the peacekeeper and I was an empath, you know, and I kind of dressed it up in these, these cute labels. But as I've gotten older, I've been able to really see it for what it is and to catch myself and be like, I did it that time. Fuck. And a big part of that process has been giving up the fantasy that I'll be able to know when it's happening in the moment. And like, (laughs) not do it. You know, like I have a dream of someone crossing a line with me and I just turn around and say like, how dare you? But the truth is that at this point in my life, I only sometimes can feel that I'm fawning or that I'm about to fawn when I'm actually in the moment. It's so deeply ingrained into the grooves of my being that I often don't know it's happened until it's already done. And that's really frustrating for me. But part of my process has been learning to accept that that's just where I am for the most part right now. And to also give myself permission to return to conversations that have already happened and be like, on second thought, this isn't going to work for me. Or I know I said that this was totally okay with me, but after sitting with it, I'm realizing that's actually not true. And what I need here is X, Y, Z. Another big part of this has been understanding that because of the way this trauma response works, 
I usually don't know what I'm feeling in the moment during a confrontation or like during distress. It takes me about one to three days to know what I'm actually feeling. And because I didn't know that for a long time, I would just, you know, do my fawning in the moment and then feel like an asshole or a crazy person or something when I would wake up super pissed about a conversation that happened like two days earlier. I would think like, what's wrong with me? I was okay with this yesterday. Now I understand. And sometimes TBH, it'll happen like a month later. Like that, that situation that I talked about with my roommate where, you know, she, she was like really out of line and then went into her whole um, history with her family and her trauma and stuff. It took me probably like three weeks to understand that I just wasn't like something was not okay. And I was actually still really angry. Now I understand that because of the nature of fawning, I need time to allow the trauma response to subside so that I can get into a space where I feel safe and I can actually feel my feelings. When I don't feel safe, which is generally anytime I feel threatened, put on the spot, pressured, or like I'm about to upset someone, I don't have access to my real real feelings because I'm just flooded with anxiety. Now that I know that I have healthier options at my disposal, I can say like, hey, you know, I need a minute to think about this. I'll come back to the conversation later. That's on a really good day because if I say that, it means there's some space between myself and the fawning in the moment. But if I'm not able to do that, like I said, I can just be like, yep, I did the thing. I responded with fawning in the face of conflict. I do that. Now I need to revisit that convo and let that person know that after thinking about it, that's not what's actually true for me. And a lot of the, a lot of that has just been about giving myself permission, being like, my feelings matter. My needs matter. I don't care if they don't like that. I feel differently now than I felt two days ago. I don't care if they're mad that they can't treat me like shit. That's not what's important. What's important is that I be on my team and advocate for my needs, period. And part of what's helped me be successful with that kind of work has been affirmations. I literally recorded my own voice on my voice memo app on my phone with like new agey meditative music in the background with me being like, I matter. My needs matter. I deserve to be treated with kindness and respect and reciprocity. I deserve to be celebrated. I deserve to feel safe. And I listened to those affirmations every day for months. And I will tell you, it was a game changer for me. I'm, I'm kind of generally not that big on affirmations, but I will say this one, I really felt a shift. Another helpful thing for me has been learning the language of healthy boundaries. It's, truly like learning a foreign language for those of us who grew up in homes like mine. Part of what's been so hard for me in changing this behavior has been literally not knowing what words people use to set healthy boundaries. Like I had no model. I had to have my therapist kind of like map out that language and it can look a lot of different ways, but some examples are, it's not okay to talk to me this way. I'm going to leave until you've calmed down or I'm going to take some time to think about this. I'll let you know when I'm ready to talk or this situation doesn't feel good for me the way that it is. And I can't continue until X, Y, Z has changed. And the last piece I'll add here is that fawning trauma comes with repressed rage. It's not that we don't have rage. It's that for me anyway, the idea of expressing it is so scary. So I just sit on it. 
So finding healthy places to direct my rage has been really helpful. I have loved going out into the middle of nowhere and just screaming. I live in the desert. So, you know, that makes that one kind of easy for me. I've also screamed into pillows. I've hit pillows. I've scribbled super fast in a journal. Sometimes I'll get in my car and scream. Actually, lots of screaming now that I think about it. Uh, I know some people work out or they run. Uh, Some people make art. You know, they just like go into an art um, trance. Some people rearrange furniture or go to a rage room where they just straight up hand you a bat and let you break televisions and stuff. There's actually one in Phoenix that's on my list to try. But I think this is the other side of the coin with this trauma is that our anger is real. It's just been scared or manipulated out of us. And it's been so healing for me to reclaim my anger and find healthy ways to direct it. Okay, Liz, how are you doing over there? Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I think that was such a vivid and honest view into fawning both the definition and how it kind of comes up for you. So thank you for that. Yes. Yeah. And thank you because I am, (laughs) I'm honestly dying to get into this with you. I have so many questions. Let me start with this one. Is there any relationship between attachment styles, like anxious attachment, fearful, avoidant attachment and the fawning trauma response? Definitely. I think, you know, if you see anxious attachment, it's this deep seated fear of doing things wrong is going to make you less worthy of love or that person. And I think we see that active in how you've described and defined fawning response. I also find that, you know, we can see this in avoidant attachment as well from trauma with like thoughts that you don't deserve a certain level of closeness, which can cause them to push, push towards a sense of perfection and for them that being defined as, as not a level of closeness. I think what's interesting that you said is similar to this kind of like unconscious response, like so much of our attachment levels and styles come out in a way that we maybe can't define perfectly until they've already happened. Mm. And I think that fawning is really our way of pacifying a threat, right? We've learned that it's a way to keep ourselves safe. And I think attachment style is that in a lot of ways too. When you do not have secure attachment, you're going to keep yourself safe by either being fearful of loss or keeping people at a distance because that's what's safe for you. So we're continuing to pacify that threat in a way. Mm, Right. Because the threat is, uh, love. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Emotional harm in any way. Right. And if you don't let somebody in, then you can't be hurt. Or if you don't let someone leave, then you're never going to be alone. And it's kind of that same, same piece there. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay. The hardest part for me about fawning is how knee jerk it is. I, I do it, you know, like I said, without realizing that it's even happening. And I think that's the part that's made me feel so frustrated with myself is it feels like I don't have control. So how do we work on that aspect of it? The aspect that feels almost like a subconscious takeover when we're in the moment and we're being confronted. Absolutely. I think what you said, I think is so important in so many different aspects of mental health, which is there's not a time limit. Mm -hmm. If what was okay for me at that time, isn't okay. Now I can say that if I felt comfortable having sex with a partner early on in the relationship, and I don't feel comfortable right now, 
that can be expressed. What was once true does not need to be true today. So I think what's really important is the to fawn or have a fawning response to something is such a knee-jerk reaction, like you've said. How many times has somebody asked us to do something and we, we've said yes, but really meant no and felt we were too deep in to remove ourselves from the situation? Let's all work to not feel that way in every time, in every situation. If something doesn't feel right, it doesn't feel right, and we can always go back to it. So that's one. Um, I think learning what fawning is, I think we've all heard about fight, flight, maybe even freeze, but a lot of us don't understand some of these people-pleasing mentalities, this perfectionism, this, you know, trying to think about this person's next action comes from this type of response. And just being able to note what it is and see it, we're going to get closer to realizing it. So like you said, it might be a month that it takes for you to figure out that something doesn't feel right, but hopefully when we're aware that we're doing it actively, that timing becomes shorter and shorter. I think that like you were saying, it's being so subconscious. People who have endured specifically like maybe narcissistic abuse, they've often found themselves fawning to be a skill to appease the situation. Mm-hmm. So it has served you to some degree, right? Like we talked about before, you pacified this threat, you stayed safe. This is now not that situation. You are safe, right? So when you're working on other things in your life and you can recognize that you are emotionally or physically safe or separated from the situation, and you can take the time to look back and see if you agree with the decisions you've made, that's going to give you an ability to respond more Mm -hmm. thoughtfully. I also think that never say yes or no right away. Even if I know I want to go out to dinner tomorrow and you text me and ask me, I'm going to say, let me check out my calendar. I'll get back to you as soon as I can, because I want to give myself space to feel, am I going to be overwhelmed tomorrow when I have to do a bunch of things? Am I going to enjoy that? Is that where I want to be? Do not respond to things immediately. When your friend asks you if you can help them move, even if they've helped you and you feel like you should, is this work for me right now? Is this realistic? Let me check my calendar and see that I can do that for you. I know you helped me and I'd love to be able to. Let me make sure it's realistic right now. Let's avoid the immediate response, like grabbing our phone the second it lights up. We're not that knee jerk that you're talking about. Let's slow down. Uh, It's so so good. And what I really like about what you're saying is the goal is not to get to a place where you are in the moment and you're like, I have a boundary right now, you know, the goal, because that can feel that that feels so far away and it feels so hard. Like I just, and I think that's why that's created this frustration in myself where I'm like, why can't I just do that? Other people do that. It's just like, actually, that's not what's realistic for me. What's Mm -hmm. realistic is I can get to a place where I just know that this is my pattern. I'm Mm -hmm. okay with that. And I am okay with going back to a conversation later. I'm okay with not grabbing my phone right away. I, I give myself these new permissions that don't make me feel like I'm trying to reach a goal that feels so unattainable at this point in my life. And maybe one day it will be, but I don't want to set myself up for failure and make myself feel like I have to be one of those people who knows immediately in the moment. I want to be, I want to be sassy. You know, I want to be <laughs> whatever the, the self-talk is. It's like the goal is not to do a 180. The goal is to know that this is something that you are working through and have these um, coping tactics along the way. 
Absolutely. I also like, I love the way you just said that. Cause I also think people have created boundaries to be synonymous with conflict. Somebody saying something and you being like, no, my boundary is I'm not doing that. And you shouldn't have asked me that I'm going to start with this problem. When in reality, it's this expression of our own needs and limits. And it can actually be a really beautiful thing. And people that care about us are going to want to be invited into boundary setting in a really positive way. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, building unlearning the immediacy and, and that people pleasing and that, that level of anticipating what that other person needs and focusing on yourself that aligns with boundary building that aligns with removing some of that fawning response that aligns with learning ourselves and what we need in that way where we become more self-aware. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of (laughs) self-awareness, another one of the things that's so frustrating about about fawning for me is that, um, is this lack of self-awareness. And what I mean by that is like, when you've been raised with, like you said, narcissistic abuse or other types of abuse that sort of wipe out your ability to speak up for yourself, you stop knowing how you feel. You're so hyper aware of everyone else's feelings that it's like you completely lose touch with what you actually want, which is, you know, also another way of saying like codependent how do we get back in touch with our truth? How do we get back to that place where we know what we want and we're not so clouded by, um, it's, it, I, I feel like clouded really is the word for me because it's like you're in this murk where you just can't, all you can see is where this other person is and you completely lose an attachment, like a grounding with your core truth? What is, what does the process look like of reclaiming that truth? So really the story you told earlier about father's day with your dad, I think is a great kind of example for us to talk about self-awareness and a huge thing I talk about with clients is, are we taking actual cues? Did dad ask you to come? Did dad tell you that for father's day, that's what he wanted? Did dad ask you to clean when you had already cooked? Did dad go to start the dishes? Did you take that cue because you were being fearful of behavior? You wanted to pacify that threat and go and do the dishes before he could be annoyed that he had to do them? Or did he ask for your help, right? Mm -hmm. So for so long, and I mean, I said this before too, is recognizing that this has served us before. When you were a young child and you were living in this home and there was fear, it served you to anticipate your parents' needs, right? I'm going to be perfect so that I don't have to see the side that's scary or threatening, right? Right. As we get older, we've now realized this kind of fawning response. We see that this is this knee-jerk reaction. We see that that's actually not going to resolve the maybe core issues here. Start to look for cues. Is this person expressing a need here or are we anticipating it? And I think people that we're really close to, we can also say that. So the example I gave before of moving you know, someone texting and saying, Hey, I'm moving next Saturday. I could really use your help. Or are we like, Oh my God, I don't know if this friend likes me right now. And it's going to feel good if I text them and say, Hey, I know you're moving next Saturday. Do you want my help? Even though I know that the last thing I want to do is be in a moving truck in 92 degree heat in New York, but Oh my God, that's going to be thoughtful and meaningful. And they helped me. So even though they didn't ask me, I'm going to do it. Like, why, why are we doing this? Even when we don't want to, Oh my God, this is such a game changer. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yes. Cues. Duh. But 
but you're so right. Like that's never even occurred to me. And no, my dad didn't ask me to come down. I don't think. <laughs> and I also think like the people pleasing goes into effect, like talking about like the perfect example you gave of, you know, someone, you going back to someone's room and them saying, what did you expect? Actually, this is not what I expected. So I'm removing myself in the situation. Right. Or when you're spending time with somebody and, you know, you want to understand what they've thought of something like the emotional assumption of a situation. Like I'm going to guess what they're thinking and respond in a certain way. And it's so much legwork for yourself instead of saying, Hey, you know, you said this the other day, it's kind of been bothering me. I just want to check in. Is this what you meant by that? Mm. That short-term discomfort of actually expressing the thought and need instead of, I'm afraid they're mad at me. I'm going to make up the space. I'm going to make my own cues. I'm going to fill in the blank. I'm going to do something that's maybe not really necessary. Right. For me, it's like, oh, they said something. I think they're annoyed with me. Um, I'm going to be like, Hey, can I make you dinner? Like, why don't you come over and I'll make you dinner. And it's not because I really want to make dinner. It's because I want to avoid them potentially being pissed at me. So I'm going to fix it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been a bad friend. I'm going to buy you a huge birthday gift that they don't need. No, just, you know, Hey, I really feel like I've been a shitty friend. I wrote you a nice card, got you an average size present. And I want to make sure that I make a little bit more effort because it hasn't felt good for me. Hopefully it hasn't, you know, it can feel better for both of us. Right. Or yeah. Like let's talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. This is, this is a really juicy one. Can you talk about how the fawning trauma response can bleed over into romantic relationships? Definitely. Definitely. So you and I were kind of talking about this a little bit before about the idea of trauma bonding and, you know, what is a trauma bond, right? So from a completely like strict definition standpoint, it's the connection that a abused person might feel to their abuser, right? So this, you know, whether it's a parent or a lover or something in this you have this bond, you have this closeness and some of the experiences that you've had, especially if you feel like you can't tell other people has almost made you closer in a, in an unfortunate way in a lot of times. Mm. So the use of this word has kind of bled into romantic relationships. Either you and your partner have had similar traumas or they almost complement each other in the way of I've dealt with narcissistic abuse and this person is a narcissist. So they, maybe they've also had trauma that's led them to feeling comfortable being that type of way. But now I know how to handle them. I know how to, how to read their mind, how to avoid them getting angry, et cetera. Right. So fawning, if it's something that we're comfortable with, or it's something that we've created as a knee jerk reaction, it's going to go into every relationship in our life, that people pleasing, that level of perfection, et cetera. So in a romantic relationship, there's really kind of easy ways for us to see if the fawning's coming up, right? So like, am I romanticizing this relationship? You know, am I listening to bad behavior and, you know, defending it to myself, to other people? You know, am I finding that level of exhaustion I felt as a child? You're, you know, when you see somebody in a bad situation and they're arguing or they're, or they're preparing to kind of fight back and they have this like lifted shoulders and this anxiety, that kind of like a little kid response to protecting themselves. Do you feel like you have a breath of fresh air when this person leaves the room? Do you know, do you avoid open communica- communication and like, there's just a lot of fear around it? Are you keeping secrets for them? 
are you the only one who knows about how hard life has been for them? And you're now carrying that on your back. There's these ways to see how bonding has created a space for a potentially unhealthy relationship for us. Oh my God. The one about, do you excuse bad behavior? Mm -hmm. That one is so big for me in my uh, romantic history. And I Mm -hmm. think I think about that. And I think about the example with my roommate mm-hmm. where she was like, it's okay that I had, you know, that I screamed at you because like I've had trauma mm-hmm. and, and I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and, and I, that's because, you know, the narcissistic abuse I experienced with my parents where they were like, Hey, my experience is the one that matters. My mm-hmm. childhood is, is what matters. My trauma is what matters. And how dare you ever feel anything other than like praise for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got into that. It's like a, it's like muscle memory. It's like, I just totally. immediately go to that place of like, Oh, you're hurting. Oh, then it doesn't matter how you treat me. It's everything's mm-hmm. fine. And with, uh, the men that I've dated, it's almost like, and I think this is sort of the trauma bond that comes out of the fact that my dad was so withholding. Like my, my mom told me, everything, every detail about her trauma. My dad never told me anything. You know, Mm -hmm. I found out about his trauma through his mom, you know, my grandmother. Mm -hmm. So for me, when guys would be like, oh, I'm telling you about my trauma Mm -hmm. and it's why I'm uh, mean. It's why I am cold. You know, it's why I can't really show up for you. I was more like, oh my God, they told me about their trauma. I'm so lucky they trusted me. And so I would lose sight completely of how they were treating me because I felt so um, excited that I was being let into this emotional Mm -hmm. landscape in any way. And then it was like, it was like I was drawing from both um, spaces with my parents on the, it was like, oh, the dad thing was like, oh, I'm so lucky that you're sharing this with me. Mm -hmm. And then the mom thing was like, Oh, and now I'll fawn over you because you've told me that you're in pain. So it doesn't matter that I feel like shit in this relationship. I now get to take care of your feelings. hundred percent. And also like, I want you to scream that story from the mountaintops because something to so look out for, especially if we've experienced trauma before, or be hyper aware if your trauma is closely related to the success of your relationship. If both of you have express the trauma. And that's what made you feel connected because thinking about this is so important because, you know, do I think to, I think two traumatized people that are working on their life can absolutely have happy and beneficial relationships without a doubt. I think we all have that capability. I think that if somebody is utilizing their trauma as a way to, like you were saying, someone saying, I can't show up for you. I can't be a partner that you want, but it's because of this. And now you feel connected to them. You're now protecting them. You're making excuses. You're draining your you know, bucket and you're giving and giving and giving because this person needs that. If your trauma becomes the foundation of the bond between the two of you, is that good? Is that because you guys both connect and you know how to have great communication now? Amazing. Is that because now you've both experienced something and you can, you're two people that actually understand each other. Oh my God, what a beautiful thing. Is it a way that this person is, is pulling on heartstrings that you've experienced more? So they know you're more susceptible to that. Okay. 
let's have a flag go off here. Right. Are they manipulating you Mm -hmm. because because they see that that's uh, a vulnerability that you have? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And also, again, it's like that question, um, am I having a good time here? Yeah. <laughs> I think when the, when you are a fawner, you know, or this is something that comes up for you, it's so easy to like, forget that that matters. And that that's like a real question. Like, is this fun for me? Am I, one thing that I've really struggled with is, um, I don't know how this person feels, you know, and that's, part of my, that's part of my pattern is I'm attracted to these emotionally unavailable guys. And I'll find myself doing, I read tarot. So I'll like be doing all these card readings and like reading their astrology and like trying to figure out how they feel about me. And then finally, one day I was like, if I have to do a card reading to find out how a guy I've been dating three months feels about me, maybe this is more about my trauma (laughs) and less about the fact that like, I'm having a good time with this person. Do I even want to keep dating him? Who cares how he feels about me? This isn't fun. I would rather someone be like, Hey, I'm really into you. Let's talk about where this relationship is going. You know, hundred percent. I think I have this conversation with my friends all the time. I had a friend recently go on a date and she was really uncomfortable. She felt really rejected after it. And I was like, you barely wanted to go on that date and you haven't said one nice thing about him. Did you like him? And she was like, no. And I was like, then why are we, why are we even letting him take up space here? And I think, you know, those conversations I have so often with that kind of people pleasing mentality or the, are you having fun question is where does your happiness end and someone else's begins? Mm -hmm. If your happiness in relationships and friendships is derived from that other person being happy with you or liking you, where's your authentic, where's the authenticity coming in here? Where's your emotion coming in here? We're constantly looking for that other person to give us the thumbs up that they're having a good time. Then we're having a good time. Right. And think about it from, if you're thinking about sex, if we're only looking for the other person to enjoy themselves, I think a lot of us are going to leave very, very, very unhappy a lot of the time. So I think, you know, it's, there's a give and take to it in a lot of ways. Yeah. Oh my God, that resonates so deeply. So I've really been thinking about this. How does the patriarchy impact fawning responses? Like are women culturally primed to fawn? What does that look like? And what does it look like to heal from the systemic abuse that results in fawning? I think that fawning is not necessarily gendered, but I think like so many diagnoses and side effects, I think people are often more comfortable diagnosing either men or women with something because of the heteronormative gendered aspects to it. So for example, ODD, which is oppositional defiant disorder, which is seen in children that are, you know, often uncooperative or defiant is much more likely to be diagnosed in a boy than a girl. Mm. And ADD, when there's a lot of energy in a young boy, more likely to be diagnosed than a girl. Mm. When I think it comes to fawning, like no, I don't necessarily think the patriarchy impacts it, but I think fawning is so often an alignment of pacifying a threat with people that are more powerful than others. So I think almost anyone who is in a situation where they feel either like the minority or less safe in the situation would be more likely to fawn. Mm, interesting. And so one thought I have is it's almost as if what you're saying is that 
the way that the patriarchy impacts it is in the diagnosis of it and not actually in the manifestation of it? Yeah. I mean, I would think, I also think that if I think about mental health as it is, there are more women that are more comfortable expressing it, seeing it, noting it, finding it. Fawning is something where you've had to, in order to understand it, you've seek, you're seeking clarity on your trauma. You're trying to figure out ways to better understand your, your fight or flight responses. I know in my line of work, I see typically more women than men. And I know in my own life between my comfort in discussing mental health and versus my husband's or, you know, my father's, I think it's the patriarchy upholds this aspect of women feeling more comfortable expressing and wanting to figure out how to move forward often. Mm. Yeah. Well, a couple thoughts came to me. One was you said, um, the threat of being a, mi- a minority, which can look a lot of different ways, right? It yeah, doesn't, absolutely. you know, a person of color, mm-hmm. um, someone who's disabled, mm-hmm. um, you know, whatever that we could go on and not someone who's queer, like mm-hmm. all of these groups of people, you know, women too, I think are disproportionately exposed to threats in our system, in our country, in the patriarchy, you know, and I think that's really important when we think about fawning the system, the way it we're systemically set up to fawn, if we are uh, just by virtue of being who we are threatened in, in the system. Yeah. I mean, I think about the way I live in New York City. I remember moving to New York City when I was in my early 20s and being taught never to walk home alone. Don't take the subway after a certain point, all of these things. And that is, you know, we're pacifying the threat of of danger, right? right? My husband didn't learn that. He rode the subway until the middle of the night. He was never afraid. So, you know, fawning from a cultural standpoint, how many times do we, you know, women learn something different than men? Or like you said, any minority, people of color, you know, people who I queer identify, like there's a lot of times where fawning becomes a safety right? We're keeping ourselves safe in a situation or we're hiding part of ourselves or we're pacifying the threat, like we said earlier, just to keep the balance in a lot of ways. It also kind of makes me think of, obviously this isn't something that I know much about, but I have heard men talk about like one guy will be sort of objectifying a woman or kind of talking about, you know, locker room talk about what happened last night or whatever. And maybe a guy or other guys in the group don't like it, but mm-hmm. they don't say anything or they kind of just go along with it to sort of pacify. And mm-hmm. is that a form of fawning too? So interesting. I mean, I've never really thought about that, but I guess if you're looking at fawning strictly as a way in which to, you know, like we've talked about pacifying the threat or understanding potential harm and avoiding it from a people pleasing manner. Absolutely. Think about, yeah. And like, think about, you know, women, in situations that we don't agree with, that we keep ourselves safe to Mm. avoid it. You know, the story you told of what did you expect to happen Mm. when you came back here, right? Right. And in that space to fawn is to pass by the threat. That makes us nervous or is uncomfortable. And our response is fawning in a way. Mm, So interesting. Um, Okay. Last question tips and tricks, like for those of us who've learned to fawn in our families of origin, what are some of the key areas to focus on when we're healing our fawning trauma response? So we kind of talked at length about taking cues. I I truly think that's like 
in, incredibly important. Even if that means looking back at a text message, it's something we've agreed to do. Is it something that we're putting out there? Has this person asked for this? Really thinking about it and expressing our own needs in that space. Again, we talked about this as taking time, right? The fawning response is that knee-jerk reaction. So before I reply, let me get back to you. Let me check my calendar. I'll see what I can do. That sounds really wonderful. I'll do my best to make it. Let me circle back next week if that's realistic. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is to give yourself space. When we're starting to feel like something's not good, like you've been talking about how uncomfortable you were with how that roommate spoke with you, expressing our discomfort without clarity. I don't know how to resolve this right now. I'm feeling uncomfortable. I'm going to walk away. I need a little time. I don't want to disrespect your feelings and I want to give real space to this. So I need a minute. Mm. Being vulnerable in that space can lead to a lot of success. Um, I I just want to jump in here and say, I love what you're saying. And I just want to like, take a minute to breathe into it. Kind of um, express how you're feeling without clarity. That is so brilliant because we don't have clarity. That's the whole thing. Like yeah. that's what I kind of talked about is that we get flood or anyway, I get flooded and I can't, it's like, I, um, I can't see <laughs> like, it feels like a weird thing to say, but it's like, I can't see not like literally, but I can't, I don't have any real understanding of like what I need or what's happening or what to do. And I love what you're saying. It's, it's like, I don't have to, mm-hmm. I don't have to know. Mm-hmm. I can just say, Hey, what I do know is I I'm feeling unclear. I'm feeling uncomfortable. So I'm just going to take some space for a minute. Mm-hmm. And even if that means you return and you say, actually, honestly, I, that was fine. I think I, I was so triggered in the moment I had to leave. That's okay too. And yeah. it's interesting. You say kind of that blindness to it in the moment. I had someone that was telling me a similar story recently and they felt they couldn't talk. So like they totally lost the ability to do that. And they took a minute, they took a sip of the water that was in front of them. And they were like, can I have five, can I have five minutes? I want to, I want to give everything you're saying real space. And in this exact moment, I can't. And that was even less vulnerable. She wasn't really ready to say something doesn't even feel good in that moment, but taking the space for yourself. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry. I, I cut you off. No, no, no. I think um, uh, we've talked about this kind of throughout and we talked about this in the last podcast too, but putting yourself first emotional energy, right? We've got one battery pack. We've got one life. Is this something that I want to be doing? Am I having fun here? Question and boundaries. I know I spent a lot of time in the last podcast. I even mentioned my favorite book, which is setting boundaries will set you free by Nancy Levin, which I I truly is one of my favorites, but stating our needs and limits and relationships, expressing how we're going to show up and feel our best and safe is so important. Um, and I think as we start to recognize that fawning is something that's coming naturally to us, and we're going to start to build barriers to feel more confident and secure in actions that feel better for us, setting the boundaries, recognizing the boundaries is a huge, huge part of that. This has been such an incredible conversation for me. I, I feel like I've learned so much and I'm probably, I'm, I'm probably going to listen to this episode again and like take notes. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, Liz. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh my God. Such a pleasure. And, and if people want to get a hold of you, how can they find you? 
Yeah, I work at Manhattan Wellness in New York. So you can find me on the Manhattan Wellness site. Um, it's a great practice. There's a bunch of us there. So yeah, come on over. Awesome. And if you want to get a hold of me, I actually just finally, I know I've been talking about this for a long time. I finally created uh, an Insta account for the pod. So it is the Patrama Party at or no, at the, how does it work? At the Patrama party. You know how it goes. Uh, on Insta, you can find me there. I'm also, you can also follow my personal Insta. It's at Remy's, R-E-M-E-E-Z. And, and if you have any, like anything that you want to talk about, any topics that you want to have covered, just reach out to me and let me know. I'm always down to like take in people's um, interests and kind of collect what we're all going through and have some conversations about it. Also, if you have, a moment and you feel like this pod has helped you rate, review, subscribe. It really does help. I read every single one and it means a lot to me. I actually like, <laughs> I was like so proud that someone had posted one the other day and I went to share it with a girlfriend and there were like four more and I started crying. We were like out to drinks and I was like, Oh my God, sorry, hold on. I need to cry. It was, it was such a beautiful moment for me. So if you do have time, that would be awesome. And uh, in the meantime, baby, enjoy the party. Bye.